Thomas, welcome. That's kind of how I feel after uh, Nancy Pelosi's successful trip to Taiwan. So welcome, and let's talk about it. Yeah, so uh, I think last week we spoke a lot about the, the status of Taiwan and international relations, especially U.S.-Taiwan relations, where they are based on and how Beijing distorts that history often in its in its own narrative, saying that Taiwan is a part of China, I meaning Taiwan is a part of People's Republic of China, which it has never been uh, and is not <laughs> clearly de facto. Um, well, might go back a little bit to this history today, more from the international perspective and the reasons of the relative isolation of Taiwan, you know, how, how it all played out. But before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit about the fallout from the visit. Um, yes. And maybe let's start with the purely military situation, which is unfolding. So, you know, by the time you, uh, you know, uh, uh, unlock from our shell, the situation could be different. It's going on for, for about a week now. So, um, it started with a cyber attack. The cyber attack, uh, was the first move by people's Republic against Taiwan already prior to uh, Nancy Pelosi's landing in, in Taipei. And you have to remember that in any large conflict going forward, you have basically, um, two thresholds of escalation. One is from level of deniability to level of a kinetic, um, uh, conflict. And the second one is from kinetic conflict to a generalized conflict that could be lethal for everybody on this planet. Okay. Very briefly, these are those two. And of course there are many intermediate levels and, um, skillful parties will be using, um, a symmetrist to their advantage when you approach cross crossing those thresholds, right? So that's what happens. Um, now cyber attacks are below the kinetic level. So chances are they're all. Let, let's, take, let's take a minute just to define some terms here. Mm -hmm. uh, define just really briefly what you mean by kinetic. Cause I'm, cause I think that's a term that trips people up mm -hmm. and in the beginning, you used the phrase, uh, deniability mm -hmm. or something like deniability. So just define those. So we're all on the same page. Okay. So let me start with deniability because it's easy to illustrate with, um, Russia's takeover of Crimea. You may remember it wasn't really, you know, officially Russian forces walking right. there or the so-called little green man who according yes. to Spring, just purchased simply some cocky outfits in any shop downstairs. Um, that's to deny the fact that Crimea was invaded, right? That's to deny that there was a long-term preparation uh to uh position politically a possible vote in favor of russia even though that particular issue had never been really tabled in international relations it was raised mm -hmm. once at the duma in russia in 1993 and that's all so okay uh deniability typical deniability actions relate to those uh tactics which are um which can be attributed, but with difficulty, right? So cyber attacks are, are, are you know, typical case, potentially, uh, dismantling of communications and that includes satellite communication. There are a couple of techniques to do this these days, you know, China famously in 2007 
pulverized one satellite to show that they can do it, except that so much debris that's kind of floating around the, uh, uh, the, the orbit that if they continue doing this, then we cannot use the geostationary satellites. Anybody cannot, wouldn't be able right. to use Including them. Yeah. Including that. So that's yeah. not the way to do it. So there are special machines now to just physically robots, you know, they come and kind of dismantle uh, the enemy satellites or maybe laser uh, could be used as well to, to blind them. Anyway, that's, that's the second one. The third one is underwater uh, communication devices. So not least the cables, the internet cables. Yeah. I came very close to cutting off one, I think, of uh, UK not long ago. And so all of these are very difficult. So they're not very easily visible and they're difficult to, uh, to detect. So, and little green men are another, you know, or, or, or yeah. similar kind of diversion tactics. So before we but get even, to even, <clears throat> excuse me, even in, even in this Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was all these obvious signs of an invasion and Russia saying, we're not going to invade. No, we just needed somewhere to park all those tanks. Right, so exactly. Even and there, it's not, it's not, anyway, it's not us, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. so, so, you know, it's not a new thing. I mean, the Nazis started the, you know, their own uh, false flag uh, actions in, you know, summer of 1939 prior to the invasion of, of Poland. So, um, you know, it's, it, 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 it's important, but it's potentially a step towards this next level, the kinetic level you asked about. Yes. And that, that's simply use of firepower, right? It's simply destructive you know, explosives and just the war as we, as we have known it since, uh, you know, early Renaissance when, when, you know, gunpowder started being used for, uh, for purposes of, of, uh, hostilities. Um, so, um, cyber attack was, let's say the first thing, the second thing that happened, of course, information war. Um, uh, but most importantly, after Nancy Pelosi left for South Korea, um, the Chinese started large scale exercises. Now yeah. to further these sort of exercises and claim that this is in response to Nancy's Pelosi's trip, um, you know, nobody will believe in that you need many months or years of preparation to do something that large scale, right? So you may be waiting for some sort of, uh, um, opportunity, uh, to deploy these forces. And it's important to look at it, what kind of forces are employed and what the, for a number of years now, we know that uh, China's objectives regarding Taiwan unification, although let's call it, they call it a reunification, but yeah. re would mean that they were unified before, which is not the case. Um, uh, you know, it was supposed to be peaceful under Xi Jinping. Um, you know, the chairs have shifted somewhat and now it's basically unification at all costs, still preferably peaceful. But what does it mean non-peaceful? Well, our usual Western thinking is it means, well, amphibious assault, right? It's basically kind of a D-Day moment where, you know, the, the, the Chinese will try to just cross the, the straits and, and land on very few beaches in Taiwan, really maybe six beaches. Otherwise, it's a pretty rocky shore. Um, that's something that there is consensus in international community and observers, they're not capable of, they're not capable of doing this. Uh, other than in the small outlying islands that are much closer to the Chinese shore than they're, to they're not capable, not because they lack manpower or hardware, but simply the geography itself makes it impossible. Yeah. I think, uh, manpower, skilled manpower, um, you know, training for that sort of large scale multi-domain operation, all of this is lacking. 
Okay. And of course the geography makes it very difficult. Like the window, uh, because of just the weather around is, is very small in a year. So that's probably a low likelihood scenario in the next couple of years could change because the Chinese are increasing their capacities. Now, uh, about a year and a half ago, a very interesting article appeared in foreign affairs, which pointed to a different scenario, scenario of a blockade so that the Chinese will try to quarantine Taiwan by blockading its, its, uh, ports and reducing its, uh, you know, air, con um, air traffic, uh, over the island. Uh, and that's dangerous because these exercises look potentially as a, uh, prep for a blockade. So, uh, the way the forces, the, the exercises that they're that they're conducting now. They're conducting right now. Preparation for that blockage. They're conducting them across from two most important ports in 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 Taiwan, which is Taipei in the north and Kaohsiung in the in the south. Uh, they're trying to close the eastern um, uh, board of, of of the island as well, which is much more than they did during the previous so-called third Taiwan Straits crisis, which took place in ninety five and ninety six in response to. The first democratic elections in Taiwan, won by Li Denghui, a native Taiwanese who subsequently went to the United States to visit his alma mater, Cornell. And those exercises lasted for about eight months between 95 and 96. I want to ask uh, a question. I want to ask a question here because it's easy to listen to what you're saying and think, oh, it would be awful for those poor Taiwanese people if there was a blockade. But it seems to me that it will be awful for everyone around the world because what comes out of Taiwan and gets delivered to us? Semiconductors, among other things. Yes. So I think there are two there are two ways looking at geography. One is of course what Taiwan exports, and there is no electronics without Taiwan exporting. Yeah. Number one. So goodbye, 21st century electronics. But the second problem is the Taiwan Straits itself. Uh, China is trying to create a fait accompli right now over the last week, basically uh, treating the Taiwan Straits as non-international waters, right? Mm. And this is new. So for a long time, they've been claiming the Southeast China Sea, which extends all the way to Indonesia and Brunei, Vietnam, is basically a Chinese lake, which it isn't, but they managed to uh, militarize it largely, militarizing a lot of reefs. You might remember Xi Jinping visiting uh, Obama, and in Rose Garden 2015, say, say to the question, you know, will you militarize Southeast China Sea? He said, no, absolutely no. And, you know, Obama grinned very happily. Um, it didn't quite play out this way. Um, so, but the Taiwan Straits is new and Taiwan Straits is important because the third largest economy of the world and the ninth largest economy of the world aligned just north of the Straits. And they trade a lot with the world. And I'm talking about South Korea and Japan. And so any attempt by People's Republic to uh, uh, take over Taiwan and the adjacent seas basically cuts off South Korea and Japan from the world. The world except maybe Alaska and, and, and Canada and the Western United States, but for example, from all the, uh, intake of, uh, hydrocarbons from the Persian Gulf and further out. So, uh, this is, this is a, a, a big issue. So let's just stay with that idea of exercises, um, to prepare a blockade 
Uh, and what is the U.S. response to this? Because the U.S. response to the exercises over the third Taiwan Straits crisis back in the 90s was to send two uh, battleship groups with air, air, uh, aircraft carriers and then the Chinese, you know, moved back. Um, that's not what we can do now because of different uh, balance of power in terms of the hardware available there. So actually, uh, Ronald Reagan, our aircraft carrier, moved away from the area to avoid any accidents. Uh, so, what it's, it's, it seems to me that it's also important to make a point here, or maybe important, that the China of the 90s is very different than the China of today. Well, I mean, very simple statistics. Uh, GDP per capita in the early 90s in China was about $350. Uh, it is now thirteen to 14000 that's the difference. Um, and of course, with the Leninist party in power, you know that a lot of this wealth is channeled towards what? Towards remaining in power. Yes. Which is both internal security and external security. However, it's defined by um, the Leninist party. Um, so, okay, let's just come back to these exercises and ask ourselves a question. What kind of response can the United States, the U.S. Navy, and it's allies with S, although the really important one is Japan here. Um, what can they undertake and what they have been doing over the last week? And that depends what your view is of this blockade. Because if your view of this blockade is this is a one-off, they just want to show that, you know, they're not going to stay behind uh, completely idle because the Chinese Communist Party has drummed up so much support for jingoistic attitudes within its population since Tiananmen, essentially to bolster its legitimacy as the defendants of the, you know, chauvinistic China. And so it's dangerous to let Pelosi land and not react to it. Let's just, you know, have a show of force and maybe afterwards, once the, the signaling is done, we go back home. If that's really what Beijing wants, then U.S. reaction is correct. The signaling... And just to clarify, signaling to its own population, a little bit, but really to the Chinese, really to the Chinese population, you might've seen on YouTube, really amusing, but also scary things from the Chinese social media that were WeChat were after the landing of Nancy Pelosi's landing in Taipei, the level of despair among Chinese nationalists, and we're talking about millions, potentially hundreds of millions of people was such that there was a lot of self-injury mm. um, shown on camera. Physical, physical, physical self-injury. You know, people would just hit themselves, you know, uh, pound, and that is, that is quite scary. Um, and so how do you placate this populace? Well, by a show of force. So if, that's, if this assumption is correct, then the U.S. Uh, uh, tactics in the last couple of days, that is just let's turn down a little bit the, the temperature, uh, no provocative statements. Let's move away a little bit from the area and let's see what happens. Then it is correct. But what if, what if this blockade means something different? I said, just a show of force. There are two other options. The second option is that this is a fait accompli and it shows the intermittent recurrent action that China can afford and will, uh, perform in foreseeable future. That is, yes, they might kind of fold for a while and they'll come back doing this again. In, in, in other words, 
um, you know, using this salami tactics in, in Western Pacific to um, kind of reinstate their claim over this area. Now, what is this area? This area, Taiwan Strait and East uh, China Sea, uh, is an area which is shared by Taiwan and Japan. Now, remember Taiwan, as we discussed before, was a colony of, of Japan before. Yep. So uh, the two of the missiles, about four, maybe four of the missiles that flew over Taiwan actually uh, landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone. Uh, exclusive economic zone is 200 uh, nautical miles from the shore, so it's not really territorial waters, but there are some vessels, the Chinese vessel that entered Taiwan's territorial other waters, and that's 20, 12 nautical miles, right? So uh, this is really quite serious. And why I'm talking about fait accompli, I give you one example, is South China Sea. And the second example is since 2012, uh, China has engaged in repeated violations of uh, Japanese sovereignty in the southern Yukyu Islands, including the Senkaku Islands. And so that's been going on for, for 10 years with increased intensity, just like crossing the, um, ex the ex defense zone, air defense zone, uh, air defense identification zone, so ADIZ, um, that's declared by Taiwan, which is roughly in the middle of a Taiwan Strait. That's become commonplace since 2020. So, uh, China basically does not regard these um, uh, imaginary lines on the ocean as, as real and violates them. And uh, with regards to Japan and Senkaku, the sovereignty of Senkaku, they've been doing it for 10 years. So chances are that this particular exercise, which is logistically much heavier than the incursions into Senkaku, uh, could be something that would be recurrent, disrupting trade and disrupting um, you know, safety of the operation of you know, aircraft, you know, civilian aircraft, and so on and so forth. But there's also a third. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask if there's an, an analogy to be drawn here between China and Taiwan and Russia and Ukraine. You know, the, the fear with Russia and Ukraine is if you give them an inch, you mm. won't be satisfied and you'll keep taking more, demanding more, fighting, creating wars to take more. And you're, you're in a way pointing to the same mindset here, I think, which is what China keeps doing is taking a little bit more, taking a little bit more, taking a little bit more, which empowers it and, and, and gives it a sense of entitlement. Well, we got that much, so yep. now we can take a little bit more. I mean, it, there is an analogy or, or it is an analog, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, in both cases. Uh, you have the revolutionist powers that believe that somehow their breathing space is, is constrained. And so Russia has proved it multiple times, you know, in Georgia and in, in, in Ukraine, Transnistria, of course, um, China is doing it mostly in Western Pacific, but also, uh, in the border on the border with India. Um, so, you, you know, this, there is definitely an analogous situation here, but, you know, I, so far I outlined two two scenarios about it. One is that this is a one off a show of force. The second one is that this is something that is going to lead to a fait accompli and a recurrent incursions, just like there are yeah, current incursions into Filipino and Vietnamese and, and, uh, uh, Malaysian, Indonesian, um, area and Japan as well. Um, but there's a third one, which is really scary that this is the beginning of the blockade. 
And if this is the beginning of the blockade for which, you know, I have no proof and I don't know whether they're logistically capable of doing it yet, uh, then U.S. Uh, response is inadequate. Because if this is the beginning of the blockade, blockading um, uh, Taiwanese parts, then no uh, significant hardware equipment from U.S. or other allies can penetrate into Taiwan for its defense. And so that was the idea of the article in the Foreign Affairs is that that's, we don't have proper asymmetric response to a blockade. Um, you know, what does it mean? I mean, does it mean that, uh, you know, if there is a ship approaching uh, Taipei or Kaohsiung, uh, there's going to be, you know, an inspection by a military vessel of China? You know, that goes, that goes pretty far. So we don't know yet which of the three options we should, we should consider here. Um, so all we can discuss is what are the results, immediate results of that, and the immediate results of the military action. The first one is intelligence. So one thing, if China is doing it as a one-off, then it reveals a lot. <laughs> it reveals a lot how they would do it for real. Mm -hmm. And so every day, Japanese spy planes take off from in its bases in the Ryukyu Islands and take a lot of pictures, take a lot of videos, uh, consolidate this with what we're seeing on the satellite and basically, of course, with the United States Navy as well, based in, based in Okinawa. So this is the first result. We'll know a lot more. Um, not very smart for the Chinese if this is exactly what they would like to do because then they're, you know, the surprise factor is not right. The second thing is, of course, the fact that the missiles, the ballistic missiles, so the missiles that were sent right off to Taipei were ballistic. So it's not like you can, you know, sit on Taipei 101 tower and see it flying above you because it's, it's very high. Then, of course, it, it, it's, its trajectory is well known. Uh, it's not a cruise missile, right? So it fell into Japanese waters. Now, the fact that it fell into Japanese waters has a huge symbolic um, value, and that will do one thing for sure. It will strengthen Japanese-Taiwanese military cooperation. Yeah. More so than ever before. Because, of course, they know they are in one boat uh, on, in the Western Pacific. Um, by losing Taiwan, Japan becomes a frontline country. And we have... Uh, completely different world. Um, and the third thing, of course, is that uh, the strengthening of the cooperation between Taiwanese Navy and, and the U.S. command in Hawaii will also uh, take place. Now, you know, the Congress has been clamoring this for a long time. It's been a little too, uh, too slow uh, to happen. So, you know, we expect more cooperation from this. But this is just, this is all we know right now about the military uh, developments because we, we you know we don't have you know insight to the Zhongnanhai in 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 Beijing or right now probably they're already in Beta Hai for the annual conclave um, discussing you know the next moves not least in the preparation for the party congress in in November. So that, yes. I want to ask a question again comparing Russia to Taiwan. You know one of the thoughts about the Russian invasion is that frankly it wasn't well-planned and well-executed mm. that, you know, Putin, if it lasted three days, he'd be okay, but they really had no plan for what if it continued on. Mm. My guess is that China's approach is very different and they will not only have a short-term victory plan, but also a plan for if there isn't a short-term victory, that they will be prepared to, to take a long view of this 
And part of that may actually be from watching how Russia has failed. Yeah, this is a, this, I, I agree with you in general. Um, we have to take into account that all of those dictatorships um, have a blind spot. And the blind spot is that they don't understand people. Hmm. They can. Remember when we discussed, when we discussed the problem of German attitude towards uh, Russia's invasion, when we mentioned that they have a lot of memory about Second World War, but it's a memory, it's a history without territory. So they feel some kind of sense of guilt towards Russia, even though most of the Nazi incursion was in Ukraine and most of the victims of that incursion were Ukrainians and Ukrainian Jews, yeah, not ethnic Russians. And so history without territory is not particularly valuable. In the case of China, the problem of the blind spot is different. It's territory without people. Only about 4% of Taiwanese people want to be part of China. How are you going to manage a country of 24, 25 million people who doesn't want to have anything to do with this? So former uh, Belgian prime minister, he said that th th this lack of imagination comes from the fact that dictators are unable to even imagine that people want to live in freedom. Huh. It's just mm -hmm. because of their capacity, right? Mm. So in case of China, all these preparations that you're mentioning, long-term preparations are based on a myth that Chinese people naturally look up to Huangdi, you know, the yellow emperor, the, 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 the cosmic symbol of the vertical system, centralized government, and this is what they want. And, you know, historically, that definitely was the case. That definitely was the case. And China could subjugate easily people, even convert them into Chinese, destroy their own cultures. This is what they're trying to do in Southern Mongolia, what they did successfully in Manchuria, what they're doing in Tibet or in Xinjiang to turn their minds and what they call right now re-educate. So that, yeah. that, that next step that you asked about was actually but, but, brought the one time, the first time by the Chinese ambassador to Paris. And I spent the last weekend with some French friends, and they were absolutely livid to hear that. Lu Shaye, the deaf ambassador, when asked, so what are you going to do once you actually take over Taiwan? What are you going to do with those 25 million people? What did he say? We'll re-educate them. This is how chilling it is. So 1.2 million. Which is already, which, which we know they're doing on a small scale basis today, for instance, with the Uyghurs. I mean, exactly. it's like the, it's exactly. the, and. And, and I would imagine that part of why over time, this whole idea of, of re-educating people has gotten harder and harder is because of things like the internet that well, are, I mean, the uh, communist party has a complete control over internet. So let's not fall into this 1990s idealism that is going to spread democracy or whatever spreads as many lies as we know from our politics in the United States. Uh, it's easy to control people's minds with internet and China has perfected the system and exports it to many other dictatorships. But, you know, the question remains, you know, once before there was this idea that China had that, you know, one country, two systems, uh, and it was actually created originally for Taiwan and then applied to Hong Kong and destroyed in the last two years completely yeah. as Chinese communist uh, legal system was, uh, imposed on Hong Kong, which had a British system, right? Yeah. And this is really important. The, the, 
under which legal system you grow up, and I know it because I moved a couple of times in my life, has a huge impact on how people function. So China has this legal system from basically borrowed from ad hoc from Soviet Union, Stalinist system, which they kind of um, combined with the legalism. Legalism is uh, second next to Confucianism tradition, uh, legal tradition in China basically says that everything is forbidden unless it's, you know, uh, yeah. deliberately allowed, right? Mm -hmm. And so they kind of draw on this tradition, but putting a lot of bits and pieces of the Soviet system, it's an unfinished business, by the way, there's several attempts to, you know, uh, update constitution and so on. It has nothing to do with Taiwanese history. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because Taiwan was part of Japan. As a part of Japan, it retained the Japanese system. What was the Japanese system? Japan became a modern country towards in the second half of the 19th century. And to build a modern country rather than, you know, a shogunate, a bakufu, you know, kind of neo-feudal system as they had until 1850s, 1860s, um, they needed to borrow the best practices. They were very impressed by British technology, for example, sending like envoys, like, you know, Okubo Toshimichi or Itohiro Bumi and so on to UK to look at technology, but they didn't necessarily like the common law, which is, as you know, you know, basically grows by jurisprudence. So yes. they went to, and they looked at continental systems, the French system and the German system, whether to use the French system, the German system was solved during the Prussian French war in 1971, 1771, which Prussia won. And of course the Japanese went to Germany and borrowed what's called the Bugerliches Gesetzbuch, so Begebe, which is the civil law, which the Japanese married with the traditional family law and created the system that exists to this day in Japan, in Taiwan, which was part of Japan, and in South Korea, which was part mm. of Japan. These three countries, and you look at how different countries react to Russia's invasion. Where can you bank on? Who's, who slapped sanctions on Russia? Precisely these three Asian countries with a German system, German legal system and Singapore plus is the fourth one, which is a British system. And so absolutely nothing. And this several generations, several generations, because that was introduced towards the end of 19th century in Taiwan, several generations of Taiwanese people grew up with this, that yes. accident of history, which brought Shanghai Shek and therefore the shell of Republic of China to Taiwan preserved that system, not least because when Sun Yat-sen, uh, in mainland China um, uh, proclaimed Republic of China after the fall of the Manchu dynasty, they also played around with the German system. They also tried to introduce that system, not successfully because of the country fell into civil war and of course it was never really completed. But the, the, the ROC, so the, the, the Guomindang leaders were comfortable with that system and it remained in place in, in, in Taiwan, which makes all the difference. Okay. So how exactly the Chinese communists are trying to re-educate 25 people. We don't know, but right now they're on record saying that that's the next step, right? The next step of Russians in Ukraine is to give away passports because if you don't take a Russian passports, you won't get your pension. And we know right. who's paid in the occupied territories, mostly pensioners, right? right. So different, different ways to, to, to address that issue. And I think both Russians and the Chinese are you know, that's illusory if they think that this is going to just bring only glory, territorial glory, as if people didn't matter. People do matter at the end of the day, and it's a huge problem going forward.
even if they are militarily successful. So um, I want to just uh, step away and just discuss a little bit the economic uh, fallout from what's been going on and those those exercises there because it's again important regionally. I mentioned uh, before that you know Taiwan Strait is so critical, it's such a critical artery of of global trade uh, that it really matters to Japan and, and South Korea. And South Korea is a country um, for all uh, the peons that I just sent, which is trying to play on two keyboards. It's so heavily dependent on PRC market that it cannot very openly alienate China. And yet, being cut off from global markets by PLA's uh, uh, self-styled exercises there, well, Korea raised the issue. They were not happy about it, right? Korean sure. exports cannot, cannot, be, can, cannot be shipped uh, because of these exercises. And so they raised this issue with Beijing. What they got... In exchange, any guess? A smackdown? Well, something of a smackdown. PLA, so People's Liberation Army, has announced that they will now launch military exercises off the coast of Korea in Yellow Sea. Right? So, gunboat diplomacy in reverse. Um, of course, as I said, Seoul is. But just to, to be clear, because they push back. Because they are. Get it double. Okay, we've seen your fireworks. Why don't we go home? Because we, yes. we still need to re remain in contact with the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, and so the Chinese will now launch, I don't know when exactly, exercises on yellow seats right off South Korea. Um, not particularly helpful. Uh, but as I said, Koreans are trying to maintain uh, peaceful relations as much as possible with Beijing. I think they, they, they dispatched an envoy to Beijing one of these days to do this. So, uh, you know, uh, not great for South Korea, definitely not great for Taiwan. Because right. if, this, if this lasts for longer, you know, the investability of Taiwan is going to suffer. Um, you know, the um, central bank helped with the stock exchange the other day, just so that it prevents from it from, from, from falling. But, uh, you know, this has been pretty good two years uh, economically in Taiwan, not least because they're masterful handling of COVID uh, yes. pandemic, way better than anybody else. And let's face it, it's a country which is not even member of uh, World Health Organization because China <laughs> doesn't want them to be, right? And right. they did a better job than WHO. So it's, it's quite quixotic. And, and so uh, both for, uh, for Taiwan and South Korea, potentially for Japan, is bad news. Indeed, it's bad news for shippers from China, from the yeah. northern ports, right? So economically, for a fragile economy globally, which has been troubled with supply chains, which has been troubled with, you know, uh, semiconductor flows and so on for, for a while now, well, this is an additional uh, hit, you know, in addition to, of course, energy problems also exacerbated by the Ukraine uh, Russia uh, war and agricultural experts from Ukraine and so on. So if I were to compare the trade impact, Ukraine, Ukrainian inability to export grain for many months hits mostly the global south. Um, if there is Taiwan's inability to export chips in the longer term, we don't know yet, but if that continues, uh, that's going to be a problem for the global west um, or, or developed countries, right? So, um, we, we got a flavor of that during COVID though. I mean, we saw the incredible impact on industries like the auto industry. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was there was actually self-made by the auto industry, which mm-hmm. under-ordered and then over-ordered. And, you know, these inventories cannot really fly in and out uh, so easily. But uh, TSMC, which is the global leader Taiwanese company, they, they, they responded to this strongly with new investments. So right. normally the issue should be um, it should be somehow solved unless of course you're quarantined Taiwan, which it isn't, and it won't be anytime soon. Um, and so there, so there, there's a military, there is economic and the third area to look at is diplomatic. And so here China was very quick after Pelosi's visit to cut off all the contacts at different levels where there was still dialogue with the United States. This dialogue regarded, for example, navigational safety in. Southeast China Sea, which China is trying to block, right? It's dangerous for, for tankers. It's dangerous for, uh, you know, bulk carriers and dangerous for container carriers, dangerous for anybody. And there was at least this dialogue kind of managing the situation, the crowded situation in Southeast Asia. Um, so that they cut off, they cut off discussion about crime control. So drug trafficking and so on. There was a dialogue in this, this area. So that's over. And most importantly, the, the, the chip that they always kind of dangled little carrot climate change. Yeah. We're not going to talk to you about climate change because you're, you're, it's so important to you and we don't care. Uh, they don't care. We don't, we don't, we know that they don't care because they build building 260 gigawatt of, uh, coal power. Right. 160, it's. The fourth of what United States and European Union have running, and they building another four. Okay, so that's a that that's the you know whether you have a dialogue with John Kerry is allowed to travel to Beijing or not, it doesn't really matter. They cut off this dialogue as well. So that's right. that's not US. The interesting thing is EU, because since the beginning of COVID, China largely lost EU. Uh, it's wolf warrior diplomacy not particularly genteel, not very well received in, in European capitals. Um, China had been active uh, for a number of years trying to split EU uh, uh, sort of east-west and attract countries in the east, which would be somewhere at the receiving end of the Belt and Road Initiative um, by creating so-called 17 plus one club. So. China always does it, right? The same in Africa. There's one China and there's those multiple little countries with which yeah. it, it, it deals. So rather than dealing with EU, which has its own trade uh, representative and you know, none of the EU members have a trade minister because the trade ministry is in Brussels. But China says, I don't care. Let's just take those 17 small countries and we'll just prize them away from EU and corrupt them and build some infrastructure and let them fall into that trap, which actually ma- uh, happened in the case of Montenegro. And then, you know, we'll have them on our side. Can I, can I draw a crude analogy and have you react to the accuracy of it? I'm listening to you talk about this relationship between China and these smaller, weak, vulnerable nations. And I'll tell you who comes to mind, Jeffrey Epstein, huh. Harvey Weinstein, right there, there, I think it is actually similar. They're, they're grooming countries for corruption and then, and then you own them heart and soul. Very interesting analogy. I think there is a lot in the, um, 
it in, in, in the behavior of that system, uh, that can be sort of illustrated this way. I, I, I want to point out, however, the 17 plus one did not work because not any better than Weinstein or Epstein does the Leninist party of China understand agency. And so they don't understand that small countries can have agency. And, you know, Lithuania clearly slapped them in the face by opening Taiwanese embassy, right? They, and, and so that was basically beginning of the crumbling of that countries like Czech Republic or Slovakia, very strongly pro-Taiwanese sending, you know, their own Nancy Pelosi's there for a while. Yeah. So, so, uh, that kind of collapsed and what China is trying to do now, um, because of course, China's verbal siding with Putin was also a red flag for, for, for European Union, for Europe in general, China is trying to win over the Western nations and split mm -hmm. them from the United States. They try mm -hmm. again. And so around the time of the Congress, right after the party Congress, um, the invitation has been sent to Berlin, Paris, Rome, and Madrid, not to Brussels. Okay. So now let's see if we can maybe cleave away those countries in the West and offer something new because China, after that collapse of relations with EU has been banking off in global South and there's yeah. a lot to be, to be said about it but they actually lost EU. So let's see what the reaction is. Uh, until then, China will have to continue to, to continue limiting itself in its support for Putin and continue uh, managing the situation in Taiwan saying, you know, it's our internal efforts. Yeah. Um, the, the, the mood in Europe is extremely anti-Chinese, right? It's to, to the extent that, you know, I haven't seen it for a while. So it's very risky for their politicians to actually accept that, um, that, that invitation. So, uh, so that's us diplomatically that's Europe diplomatically. And what about the global South? And here is a, basically a purgatory for uh, all people who care about tyrannies, ASEAN. So the South uh, East Asian organization had a, had a summit precisely during when the crisis started over, over Taiwan and Wang Yi, the minister of foreign affairs of China was there. Uh, very importantly, he refused to see his, uh, Japanese counterpart, Nobuo Kishi, because Japan as a member of G7, of course, made, uh, uh, statements against the actions of Chinese communist party a couple of weeks ago. And so this was right before those missiles were lobbed into Japanese waters. Um, so that's, that's very interesting, but at the same time, you know, ASEAN members, all happy family. Uh, it's, uh, current, uh, the chairmanship, uh, belongs to Cambodia. So essentially one of the two vassal states of China, the other being Laos. So they made a very strong pro Beijing statement. Malaysia made a different move, um, with their envoy, their ambassador in Beijing, making a pro Beijing statement. And that's strange because Pelosi was in Malaysia before flying to, uh, to Taiwan. Uh, so I think that has been discredited by Kuala Lumpur, that move in, in Beijing, but it happened, right? I think the source of major disappointment after so much massaging is India. India, as I mentioned before, is this beautiful bride that everybody wants. Uh, the tyrannies want them and the Western world wants them. And so they think they can basically afford everything. And in case of Russia and, you know, buying Russian oil, uh, and, and LNG prospectively, they've been big winners, coal as well. 
they've been big winners. In terms of China, of course, China is number one. China and its ally Pakistan are number one uh, enemies of, of, of India. So you would expect India to say something. Unfortunately, Indian attitude is, well, um, you know, we'll be fighting for Taiwan until the last American soldier. That's not official statement. That's the attitude. It's the same attitude when at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war, there were questions, why aren't Indians demonstrating? Just like people in Berlin were demonstrating against the war. Why aren't they? And the answer from uh, Minister Jai Shankar, Mr. Foreign Affairs was, well, you know, we never, we never really uh, have any stance concerning, you know, internal affairs of other countries. We don't do this. Forgetting that in 2003, there were major anti-American uh, uh, demonstrations in India after Bush's war and yes. in Iraq started, right? So, so there's a lot of hypocrisy here, a lot of, um, a lot of dangerous hypocrisy. Uh, U.S. continues to invest a lot into its relationship with, with India. More is done than it's said about it, not least by the military. You know, the military problem that India has with, uh, with China is in the Himalaya. So we've gone as far as inviting Indian uh, troops to train with us in similar conditions in Alaska. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a lot for Indians. Indians are very upset about the way we pulled out from Afghanistan last year because, you know, they're, they're, you know, holding the baby. But did they come up with any solution? You know, were they really proactive finding a solution for, for Afghanistan post, post U.S. pullout? They didn't, right? So let's see how much of this quipper pro is possible and what India actually, what role it plays because it's absolutely pivotal in this third world war that started on February 24th. That's a lot, Thomas. All right, everybody, absorb that. Get prepared for tomorrow at the same time, 11 a.m. Eastern with Ilya Ponomonorov. Um, one of the things we'll talk about with Ilya, I'm sure is uh, Ukraine bombing Crimea. Uh, a very interesting thing. If you, if you haven't been reading about it, uh, it's worth reading about uh, a fascinating strategic move. I believe only made possible because of the weapons from the West. I, uh, I, I would, I would, uh, throw in here that according to Moscow's statement, yes, <laughs> possible because someone was there with matches, just like on Moskva. Someone was smoking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's really interesting when you hear Moscow's propaganda about it, the sinking of Moskva and now those explosions yes. in, in Crimea, because it means only two things. Either Russians are complete idiots and indeed smoke and use matches where they shouldn't, or Ukrainians are geniuses. It seems like the Moscow's propaganda prefers the former. Well, yes. Be my guest. Yes. Uh, so I guess Russia needs Smokey the Bear. Uh, you know, well, I can't remember. He said something about preventing forest fires because of smoking. Anyway, Thomas, I'm going to let you go. Thank you.